Welcome to Good Employment Charter, the podcast of the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. In this season, each and every week, we'll be speaking about equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be providing key legal updates, getting practical advice from industry experts and spreading more awareness on the good employment practices that are going to make Greater Manchester fairer, more inclusive and with equal opportunity for all. I'm your host, Ian MacArthur, so let's get on and into the episode. To close this season, we thought it was only right to base the final episode around inclusion. Whilst you can measure equality and you can count diversity, without inclusion, these numbers hold no weight. Creating truly inclusive workplaces requires extra attention. And it's focused on the kind of environment that's fostered for employees to work and thrive in. An inclusive workplace is one that makes every employee feel valued, whilst acknowledging that difference exists and recognising that there are benefits of such difference. Inclusive employers take action against any potential bias and discrimination, and they actively support employees from a wide range of diverse backgrounds, such as the ones we've covered in the episodes of this season. For the first time, our opinion piece comes first in this episode, as we'll hear from Mo Isap, founder and CEO of Infor Group, and what inclusion truly means to him. We'll then move on into the main discussion where we'll explore this topic more thoroughly with the use of real examples of employers working towards creating inclusive workplaces. And for the last time this season, we'll move on to our employment law update of the week from Adam Haynes, partner at Aaron and Partners. Thank you, Adam, for all your hard work and contributions to this series of the podcast. It's been great having you open the show for us. Over to you. Thank you for joining me today for the final episode of the series. It's been an honour to be involved in such a fab organisation and project. I just want to say a massive thank you to Georgia for the incredible work she's done in relation to setting up and the editing. She's been a massive help and I think the output's been incredible. So thanks a lot. Anyway, moving on to today's update. What I want to talk about is there's been a few high profile cases in the media. The first one being the recent Supreme Court decision of Harper Trust v. Brazel. This has been all over the press in the last day or so. This case has been going on since 2018 and has been widely reported due to the impact for employers. In this situation, the Supreme Court ruled that paid holiday entitlement of a part-year worker or a zero-hours worker should not be pro rata for weeks they do not usually work. What did this mean? So the 12.07% method of calculation for holiday pay, which has actually been promoted by ACAS but recently removed, of casual workers on a permanent contract is no longer a valid approach. You used to see it in people's contracts and things, and we've got a number of queries about it. It can be really difficult to calculate. But I'll break this down further as to what actually this means, because it's quite hard to read what exactly are people getting at. To start from the beginning, under the working time regulations, all workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday each year, or 28 days, as most people are aware. The working time regulations doesn't refer to prorating the entitlement for employees working part-time. Calculating holiday entitlement and pay for workers with no set hours is particularly difficult, as mentioned before. 
as already explained, ACAS actually recommended the method of 12.07%, saying casual workers accrue statutory holiday entitlements at the rate of 12.07 hours worked and therefore use that to do so. Casual workers were therefore accruing holiday entitlement in the same proportion to hours worked. Okay? So instead of getting the full-time equivalent, it would be prorated down depending on actual hours worked, which appears to make sense practically. The poignant issue which we'll come back to is the working time regulation doesn't refer to that. In this case, Mrs. Brazel was employed as a casual worker teaching music. She worked in term time only and roughly 32 to 35 weeks a year. Her working hours varied depending on a number of pupils requiring tuition and was paid an hourly rate each month, which obviously varied. Mrs. Brazel was paid at the end of each school term, obviously those three school terms, as one-third of 12.07% of her earnings in the previous terms, which in reality seems relatively practical and reasonable. She claimed her holiday was being underpaid. She was entitled to holiday based on her average pay during the working weeks, and 12.0% method had no basis in law. What the Supreme Court finally made a decision on was that the working time regulation does not permit holiday to be prorated. The correct calculation is based on the calendar year rather than 32 to 35 weeks work or rather than term time as actually they're used in this situation, which is average pay of a reference period of 52 weeks. As such, workers under a permanent contract are entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday per year regardless of the work they do It won't impact on classic part-time workers. However, it will have a significant impact on people on a permanent contract for the whole of the year, but actually working less than the full year. So, for example, teachers who work only term time or sports coaches who work for a sports season but are on a permanent contract will be hugely impacted by this case and will be entitled to potentially bring unlawful collection of wages claims in relation to holiday pay, which I'll come back to later. The issue with this decision, though, is it may lead to some some really absurd decisions. So an example that we reference is that if an employee is on a permanent contract and works only one week of the year earning £1,000, then they would be entitled to 5.6 weeks annual leave at a rate of £1,000 a week. This is because you ignore weeks that you don't receive pay over the 52-week period. So therefore, the holiday entitlement for that individual of only working one week would be £5,600 holiday, even though they've only been paid £1,000 job that year. So what should you do if this is applicable to you? Well, it's worth noting firstly that unlawful deduction of wages claims are capped at two years back pay. So you can't go back further than that. So from a risk assessment perspective and budgeting, that's something to be alert to. Also, you can only bring a claim if the unlawful deduction was in three months of the last deduction. If you rectify the issue, then that breaks the chain limitation for the purposes of three months start. In regard to the documentation contracts, I'd consider reviewing any permanent contracts whereby people only work partially through the year and where applicable, try and obviously amend those contracts to make sure that we don't get one of those absurd results as previously discussed. There is a lot of commentary around this as well and thoughts that the legislation may be amended. 
to prevent this situation going forward, but essentially watch this space. It's a very early days. The decision was only two days ago. The other case I wanted to talk about, which uh, in the last few weeks has got a lot of tension as well, cases Macarath, BDWP, and Advanced Management Group. The claimant in this situation was a Christian doctor who contracted with Advanced Management Group to carry out assessments of disability-related benefits, basically a working as a health and disability assessor for the DWP. One of the requirements of taking that role was that he must comply with policies. During his induction, he said that he would not refer to transgender persons in a way inconsistent with their birth gender, which ultimately conflicted with a DWP policy. The respondent tried to accommodate the claimant's position firstly and looked at whether he could do a non-customer-facing role or whether they can ensure he was never going to be assessing a non-transgender service user. Unfortunately, though, neither was practical. The respondent met with the claimant and made it clear that his role was at risk as a consequence of this issue. And there's a lot of stuff around the version of events, but I won't go into details. I'm very much paraphrasing these. In essence, the claimant then stated his belief derived from Genesis and that a person cannot change their sex slash gender at will. They asked the claimant to follow the DWP policy, which he refused, and said due to his faith he could not comply, and basically deemed himself to have been sacked. Subsequently, he brought claims for direct discrimination, harassment, and indirect discrimination, relying on protected characteristics of religion or belief. I haven't gone into detail really regarding this around the claims of because there's nothing really too new about the way the actual claim ends. But the big issue is around whether he had a belief and the issues around that, which I sort of previously touched upon, and this develops on. So the first instance, the Employment Tribunal dismissed the claim on the basis that his beliefs did not satisfy the Granger case, which I've discussed, namely the belief must be worthy of respect in the democratic society and must not conflict with fundamental rights of others. The ET held the tribunal had made several errors when they looked at this at the appeal stage. It opposed too high a threshold in relation to the criterion that the belief must be worthy of respect in a democratic society. The threshold in a democratic society must be set at a low level so as to allow for protection of majority and minority beliefs, even if they may offend. They then went on to cite Forstata, who previously had covered this case in one of the other episodes. The fact the claimant's belief was likely to cause offence, did not reach the high bar for exclusion. Ultimately, the ET implied that claimant's beliefs were protected characteristics and were capable of protection under the Act. However, his claims for direct harassment failed. He was merely asked to clarify his position by the company, and he left during that investigation. The reason for the investigation was to ensure that people were treated as they wished and not to single individuals out. In relation to the indirect claim, the PCPs were found to be necessary and proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So, obviously, the claims ultimately failed because there was justifiable reasons for the decisions and actions that were taken by the company, which makes perfect sense. But I think it's a useful case where it affirms how tribunals are going to look at people's beliefs going forward and there's a bit of clarity around this topic. In summary, despite the claimant's beliefs being protected, it is not unlawful discrimination for his employer to disallow this particular manifestation. Even offensive and shocking beliefs can be protected 
For starter, is good law. An employer is still entitled to restrict manifestation of a protected belief. By doing so, it is necessary, proportionate, and in pursuit of a legitimate aim. For example, in this situation, treating people with respect and with equal opportunities. Just wanted to finish this with a new piece of potential legislation that's coming through. In the 12th of July, the government has announced that it is backing neonatal care bill. The bill allows parents to each take up to 12 weeks of paid leave in addition to maternity and paternity leave so they can spend more time with their baby who, having been prematurely born or sick, is receiving neonatal care in hospital or other agreed care settings. For me, this is a, a massive step and it is a bill that's really close to my heart given personal circumstances in the past and this is a, a, a fab piece of news. It will apply essentially from the first day of work. It relates to babies admitted up to the age of 28 days and it relates to a continuous stay in hospital of seven days or more. So just wanted to finish the update on what I believe is a really good piece of news. Anyway, thanks a lot so much for everything for this series and hopefully I'll I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Today on the show, and for the first time, we're going to open with our opinion piece. This is where we invite somebody to join us and talk in detail on a particular equality issue. Today we're joined by Mo Isap, founder and CEO of Infor Group, a tech-focused skills and innovation growth services provider based in Salford. Mo is going to speak to us about inclusion. Hi Mo. Welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. I am. Mo, we know that inclusion is a broad subject and it's often a word that's used interchangeably when we speak about diversity or equality. And whilst we can count diversity and measure equality on their own, they are nothing if not brought to life through the actions that are inclusive. Could you talk to us, Mo, through what inclusion means to you and why it's important employers take action to create inclusive workplaces. It's a big subject, which is very subjective. I don't profess to be having this conversation to have all of the answers, nor do I state my opinions in any view of being the only answers. I can only base my opinion on my life experience. So I come from a lower working class background, first generation migrant community, working, you know, living in a lower working class mill town in deepest, darkest Lancashire and, and having come through a system. So that's where the context is. And having been in business and being an employer for nearly 25 plus years, I have, a, you know, obviously an understanding of business and, and employment and where we sit today, which is very different to where we were even 20, 25 years ago when I was starting my entrepreneurial journey and, and being an employer for the first time. So in answer to your question about what does inclusivity mean, I think we have to go back to understanding where the dynamics are within society and community. Because I think if you start with the position of we have the answer to a problem, I think you'll never fix the problem. I think there is the first point of empathy that needs to be understood. 
Because everybody's problems are contextual and it's not a one size fits all type of solution. And I think if people take the opinion on inclusivity as being a policy or some measure of activity and, and that's effectively it, then we're not going to be able to achieve the equity that is required and we're not going to have the diverse workforce that's necessary to reflect the communities and society that we have today. So I think it's about one understanding and empathizing where people are and, and why certain things are the way they are. Because I think we tend to, and it does happen to all of us, and even those of us who come from those backgrounds, that when you get to a certain level of prosperity, we tend to think that we have got to where we got to through a meritocracy or a system that is meritocratic. And it's not the case because, you know, sometimes you have these conversations around the dinner table where we say, well, you know, we worked hard, we didn't get much, our parents didn't have much, and we did work hard. And, you know, we had to sort of slave and struggle and make sacrifices. And that's why we are where we are. And the the connotation of that conversation is that those who don't, uh, don't achieve the same results. And that's not the case at all. That it's not just the fact that people don't work hard enough or don't wish to work hard enough or don't want to make the sacrifices the fundamental that they don't have the fair access point or the understanding of what the opportunity actually looks like and the challenges in life are such that they can't actually explore those opportunities or don't have the network to educate them or give them understanding of where those opportunities may lie, no matter how hard. And so they labor in certain other areas and they try their best in trying to do their best for themselves and their families and, and, and in their communities. So. I think one thing I always say to people is the poor don't understand how poor they are and the rich don't understand how poor the poor are. It's a great quote. And that is so true now more than ever. And in the pandemic, I think that came to light and it shook the hell out of so many people to understand there are people still living in our first world country who don't have you know, enough food to feed their children. And... That came as a massive shock, and I don't know why that came as a shock, because it's been going on for many years. It's just that the pandemic put a massive light on the circumstances of those who didn't have and how they were impacted so badly. So I think as employers, we need to understand where society is and how stratified our society is as well. Because let's be honest, in, a, in the modern world, more so than maybe previously, maybe in our parents' generations, we operate in a stratified world. So if you even think about the socioeconomic groups that we associate ourselves with, so we have dinner parties with our same demographic, you know, people we went to university with, people who share the same tastes and the same sort of areas of affluence or prosperity or what they do on the weekends type of thing. Our children go to specific schools. You know, we date the same type of people. There's even apps to connect professional people and people who are of a certain education and everything else. And in now the work environment, let's be honest, in a virtual work environment, you know, we don't then, we'll never interact with people who are coming from different backgrounds into different occupations and different modes of working. Whereas back in the day, blue collar and white collar, you had friends who were you know, working on the factory floor and the person who was doing the you know, as the accountant was friends with, you know, and you used to mix with, you know, so you understood where people were and you had that upward ambition and that sort of, you know, I want to be better because I can see somebody doing better and I'd like to be where that person is. Whereas now we're completely closed off. 
so we only associate with the people that, you know, we even marry the people who come from a similar background. Look at the gentrification of some of the parts of our cities that previously were the places where, you know, working class folk used to live. And now they are out of their reach because developers have built a quarter of a million plus pound one bedroom apartments that will become the domain for upwardly mobile professional individuals who will all congregate in the same demographic. And if you go to the Northern Quarter now, <laughs> you see a certain background of person with a certain demographic as well. So we're in danger of being too sorry and we're already satisfied. And we must understand that how do we go out and reach into communities and ensure that we can empathize and we can understand the challenges of entry or access. The other thing that we must be conscious of in inclusiveness is that we must have authenticity in what we do. And people can't be what they can't see. And we must actively work with people from communities to ensure that whatever we're doing is correct. And it actually does what we are aspiring for it to do. As best intended, we all are. And I don't question people's intent. But by not doing that deliberate engagement, we then make mistakes. And that is a greater barrier for people because people then see us as being disingenuous as employers and we're just tokenistic and we're not looking to support the agenda. So it's about bringing people of authenticity into your organization that helps you understand the nuance and the complexities and the smaller points, which are the ones that you have to be so conscious of rather than just the larger agenda items that you cover in an EDI policy. So we have to do that. And it's a long-term game. If anybody thinks that this is a short-term win, then forget it. You're just doing it for the sake of optics. It's a long-term game. And this is something that we at Info Group are doing with SkillCity, which is the biggest digital skills bootcamp operator in the country now, where we're taking people from those backgrounds females, career breakers, people from minority communities to come into tech and we fast track them to get career starts in those jobs into those companies. Now, in three to four years, these are the people who will be the leaders of those organizations. But you have to be able to not only recruit them, which is what we support with, but also retain them and the environment that you then create to nurture and support and give confidence to those individuals is as important. And that's what we support with as well. But it's a long-term game. Five to 10 years is when you're going to see results on that type of investment. The problem we have is everybody's on a zero-sum game trying to get people into jobs. And because that's the clamor and because that's where the capital markets sit, that's where investors want results and shareholders wish to have returns, that comes at the sacrifice of that longer-term investment. I believe that you can do both by bringing that talent in, fast tracking them so that that doesn't take as long to get them to that competent level. And in doing so and creating a culture, you can get bigger returns, faster returns, more loyalty, and much more of a diverse and inclusive agenda. Because once you've got people like that in your organizations, you don't necessarily have to need a policy to implement equity and inclusivity because it will be done in on itself. All you then need to do is continue to invest, inspire people from all quarters and all backgrounds to want to work for yourself and into the places that you operate in. Well, that's a wonderful overview. You really painted a very rich picture of where we're at. 
the notion of, uh, I guess, social silos that we all live with and accept really do kind of almost tram railroaders into a particular kind of behavior that looks at our own type and we congregate around ourselves and we recruit people in the image of ourselves. And what you're doing is certainly breaking those barriers. If you were to talk to Greater Manchester employers, Mo, what one piece of advice would, because you're right, you know, the the people that are listening to this are right-minded, they want to do the right thing, but perhaps they just don't know quite how to take the first step. What what would your advice be to them, Mo? Yeah, I think I think it's about connect. I mean, we're well served in Greater Manchester, and the work that's being done with the Good Employer Charter and all the organisations, the growth company, ourselves at Host at Media City and and Skill City, and all the other partners that work. There's a lot of support for employers to ensure that they start as as they mean to go on and are supported on that journey. I always say that make sure as an employer, you are committed and your intention is pure, that you tell your board and your shareholders and your colleagues to say, we're committed to this. We're going to put our core investment because this is not something you do as a CSR thing or a nice thing to have on the front cover of your annual report. This is something that is going to future-proof your business to the core, then treat it like that and make the investment as such and make it from the top so that everybody understands how serious you are, how committed you are, and you won't stop at the investment that you make in that space. I think if you send that message out, everything else starts to fall into place. And if your journey is sincere, then you will find good people who will join you and support you on that journey. Mo, that's really great advice. You you are so right that EDI or inclusion, whatever we want to put on it, isn't about a policy that sits on a shelf. It's not the CSR gloss. And listening to you, Mo, it's clearly about leadership and setting the culture right from the top. And uh, you've been a fantastic example, not just in your own organisation, but also what you deliver through Infor Group. So. Mo, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Really insightful. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. To continue on this topic, we now move into our main discussion. Mo has provided a very personal introduction to us on his definition of inclusion. But now we'll explore in more detail what this means in practice and how organisations can work to embrace inclusion. Today's conversation will be led by Gillian Drakeford, a senior executive with over 25 years of international retail experience, including with IKEA in China, Netherlands and the UK. Welcome back to the podcast, Gillian. It's great to have you chairing this session. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be back and uh, speaking on the podcast this season and for me on such a very important topic. I think for me, inclusion is very much an outcome where ethnicity, diversity, practices and processes, policies really come to fruition to create an environment where there is a culture of inclusion. And I was really taken actually a little bit with what Mo said in his session is that this is a long game. It's not something that 
can be delivered or ticked off in the short term because it needs to sit deep inside everything you do, you know, recruiting, retaining and the environment. But one of the things that really resonated with me that I think I used a lot during my time working internationally and also very much in the UK is the statement that Mo made, which was people can't be what they can't see. And I think this is really, really profound in the sense that when you're working in an organization, if you can't see people like you or people with similar backgrounds, ethnicity or opportunities, then actually it's difficult to see how you can grow and develop. And I think when I worked in a retail environment, I quite often would go into a store. It didn't matter where it was, which market. And I would look at the leadership team and I would look at the level of ethnicity and diversity in that team. I would then look at the workforce and I would also look at the consumer. Because I think, you know, if you want to have a good relationship with consumers or with your people, then you need to be connected to them. You need to understand where they are and also you need to have empathy for them. So therefore, it's so important if you didn't have a representation of your consumers in your employees and your, the employees in your leadership team, then, of course, you wouldn't have an inclusive approach. So this view of actually having role models, securing that people with different ethnicity and diversity are taking senior roles, are being seen, actually encourages others to see what's possible. So I think for me, it is very much about a long game. It's about the culture and the environment that you're in. But that doesn't mean that you need to take everything in one go. And I think actually having a program that enables people to be seen and progress quickly to help with the movement in diversity is so important. So that's a little bit my view. And now I'd really like to bring in our speakers to the conversation and today we're joined by Helen Horton, who is the Senior Advisor at ACAS, and Lisa Adkin, who is Diversity and Inclusion Lead at Talk Talk. Wonderful to have the opportunity to introduce you both and to be a part of the discussion with you on the podcast today. And I'm really, really looking forward to hearing your insights and the work that you're doing. So firstly, I'd like to come to Helen. From your work with ACAS, and through your personal insights, what's your opinion on how organisations can be truly inclusive? Thanks, Julian. I mean, I think just before we have a look at how workplaces can demonstrate that they are inclusive and the, the kind of steps that they can take, I just kind of want to echo what it is that both you and Mo have said about the fact that this isn't going to be an overnight thing. It isn't going to be an overnight fix. It is something that organisations do need to do in the long term. And ultimately, they do need to do from top down, which I think Mo mentioned as well during the part that he was speaking on. I think that the other thing to, to bear in mind with inclusion is that, as Mo said as well, it is a subjective topic. And in my mind, when I'm thinking about what it is, it's about treating everybody as an individual, valuing them and their contribution. And as you've just said, Gillian, doing that right from the very beginning, I mean, we're all aware that the Equality Act, so the minimum that we need to do by law, applies right from a recruitment stage. Well, so should all of this, so should everything that we're speaking about on this particular podcast about inclusion. And I think it's also important for organisations to recognise why this is important. It's not just about having a piece of paper or a policy that says we are inclusive. That, that's not what it's about. I mean, ultimately, the reasons that I think that 
inclusion is so, so important. Well, there's a, such a wide variety of them and, and they come down to kind of like the, the human side of things. We want to be treating people in the right way. We want people to feel valued for I don't know, their unique qualities, the uniqueness of them. And there's also the organizational benefits, of course, because if people do feel valued, as I'm sure we're all aware, they're, they're going to be bringing their whole selves to work. And that's what inclusion is all about. They're going to be making the most of themselves. And I think it's fair to say that it's very easy to see that if people are doing that and if people do feel included, if people are bringing the whole selves to work, as we've just said, and working to their full potential, it's going to have massive positive impacts on things like morale within an organisation, performance, productivity. But it's also going to bring in things that might sound a little bit scary at first. So ideas for change, for example, or potentially some new ideas that, that haven't been thought of in the past. So having to think about how we do this, one of the, the key things that I think is very, very important when we're thinking about inclusion is having to think about, okay, we as organizations, we will all have our, our company values or our statements. And I think it's about going back to them in one of the first instances and having to think about, okay, well, we've got these statements. Are we doing what we say we're doing? And I suppose the question then becomes, well, how do we know? How can we actually measure that? And I mean, there's all sorts of different different ways in which an organization can do this. But I think one of the main things is making sure that we are in some way giving our staff a voice. So we may already have, for example, existing staff forums or staff networks. We might not. And if we don't, maybe it's something that, that we might want to think about setting that up. Because otherwise, how would we know? How would we know how people are thinking or how they're feeling. Other things that we might want to take into consideration, things like staff surveys, but as well as that, what do we do with the results of staff surveys? What do we do with the information that we get back? Because conducting a survey on on how people are feeling at work, whether they feel included, whether they feel that they have been, for example, able to develop skills or able to um, speak in a way that is uniquely them, if people are saying that they don't feel that is happening within an organisation, what can we then do about it or what should we then do about it? And I think one of the things that we do need to recognise as well is that if we are receiving information that people don't feel included, it can be a little bit scary. It might not be something that we were ready for, but ultimately that's the first step forward in my mind. So long as we're listening to what it is that staff are saying, so long as we're listening to what it is that staff are saying they would like to see, they are seeing, and we are reacting to that or responding to that, I think ultimately that's one of the, the key steps forward. So it's all about the, the communication. I think although I have said already that inclusion is not just about a piece of paper or a policy, I think it's key that we remember that existing policies must be inclusive in order for an organisation to be seen to be inclusive. So policies can almost be seen to be almost live documents in one sense of the word. So making sure that what we have within our handbook or within our guidance or even within our contracts, making sure it's fit for purpose and that the way that policies are being applied is not having a a negative impact on, on anybody within the workplace. It's not meaning that people are feeling excluded in any way. And again, I think that's something that can be measured through this idea of, of giving staff a voice. 
I think that's really interesting insights, Helen. And I'm so happy to hear that we share a similar view about that this is a long game. I think you're very right as well when we talk about the importance of values. And do you create that environment where people feel valued, they can have a voice and they can share? Because that's the way to get people involved and to be included. It resonates me when I when I listen to what you say. It's good that you talk about policy because I think policy is so important, but you also say that it should be living. So for me, what I hear you saying is, you know, it is about that culture of the organization. It's about that valuing your people, but then also having policies in place that actually support and enable people to lead with that. Thanks, Helen. And then next to Lisa, Talk Talk was notably commended for the Good Employment Awards for its work in this field of inclusion. And it would be really great to hear more about how your organization puts inclusion into action. And could you explore this and maybe share some of your insights, Lisa? That would be great. Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. So just in terms of my perspective on inclusion, for me, it's all about behavior. You know, it's about empathy. It's about respect. And more often than not, it's about who's not being included rather than who is. You know, of course, we need the policies, as we touched on the processes, the background to underpin an inclusive culture. Absolutely. But, you know, as we've touched on already, it's the long game. And much like when legislation changes in society, hearts and minds often take a bit longer to change and to see that coming through. And I think it's often the same with the kind of doing the underpinning work of policy and making sure everything is absolutely as inclusive as possible. But getting that culture change can take a little bit longer. And I think really important about meeting people where they are. You know, talked about a business perspective. You want an engaged workforce. An engaged workforce are going to feel like they belong, that they're part of the family. And happy employees are going to deliver and be productive and engaged in the workplace. But for people to be able to bring their whole selves to work, that environment needs to be really over. We need to be proactive in talking about that we are an inclusive environment and that people don't have to hide parts of themselves or modify their behavior to fit in and that they can absolutely bring their full selves to work and pour all of their energy into their role, into their career in bringing their whole selves to work. I think in terms of activating an inclusive culture, it can feel overwhelming. There's certainly a lot of moving parts to it. You know, as we've touched on, there's the kind of underpinning piece, this policy, there's a lot of people involved. And I think it absolutely needs to be a business priority and not just kind of sit in the feel of kind of HR or people team area. Everyone needs to be part of the conversation. And I think really important to define what it means in your business specifically. There's not a one size fits all approach to this. People need to connect to it. It needs to feel relevant. So I think, you know, as you just touched on before, connecting it to values is a really great way to do that. The business values that everyone will already be familiar with, connecting it into those, you know, at Talk Talk as a care, challenge and commit. They are fantastic values to connect inclusion to because, you know, it's about caring about each other. It's about committing to doing the right thing and challenging each other and creating an environment where we can challenge constructively and challenge each other to be better for each other as well as our customers. And connecting it to the business strategy overall, it needs to feel part of that. It doesn't want to feel like a separate initiative 
were a separate project. It needs to fit very much into the direction of travel of the business strategy and be really clear that it's a priority because, you know, in any business, people are the biggest asset. I just had a question because I think you touched on it and also Helen did the importance of it being important for the leadership at the top and that it can't be something that's run from a HR perspective. It needs to be inside the business. And in order for you to be able to move it at Talk Talk, how did you work then with the leadership team to secure that it was something that was really important to them? I think it's bringing it to leadership team's attention helping educate and support. I think with leaders, it's about meeting them where they are. And we can't expect leaders to be experts on all of this as an area. So I think spending a lot of time with leadership teams, talking to them about diversity and inclusion as a whole area, and then talking about actually, let's have a look at our demographics. Let's look at our data. Let's look at where we are in terms of representation, because that is a key part of this. You can't be what you can't see, as was touched on in the introduction. Really important part of it. So looking at the data and another part of it was looking at the data. We measure a lot on employee sentiment, engagement, how people are feeling and actually having specific diversity and inclusion questions within that that we can bring. I think it needs to be evidence based. And that's the approach we've taken. It's where are we now? Where are we going to and how are we going to get there? And I think having those kind of conversations has really helped and making it really clear that role modeling inclusive behavior absolutely needs to come from the top and go right throughout the business. And, you know, we've also got our employee networks who really help us get those diverse voices at the table who have been a really key part of this. And I think often employee networks and affinity groups can potentially be overlooked sometimes as a kind of key driver in this. And they shouldn't be used as resource, certainly, but the power that they have in terms of being a real conscience for the business, that's how I see them. And they really help us consult on changes. We absolutely talk to them about policies we're working on. They do lots of events. They showcase storytelling. You know, we've done a lot of our work through storytelling, events, educating, celebrating and elevating. That's a lot of the key pillars that we go back to with our employee networks, which has really helped bring it to life for people. Leadership has accountability, yes. But everyone has the responsibility to be inclusive. Each of us have it in our gift every day to take actions, to be more inclusive, to be great allies, to speak up, to stand up, to speak up what we stand for. But I think it goes further than the workplace. I think it's about who we are and tapping into our values and what they're about and bringing that in. You know, everyone has their own barometer of values and really connecting to those and coming into the workplace and sharing those and actually. Being in a culture where you can be yourself, you can stand up, you can challenge in an absolutely constructive way and you can thrive, you know, as Helen touched on as well, really important to get those voices at the table because they should shape your inclusion strategy because without knowing where the gaps are, where the challenges are, where you're doing great, where you certainly need to do better, you need a starting point. And so that's an absolutely key one. Thank you. No, I think when I listened to both of you, you both talked about the importance of the ownership and accountability from within the leadership team as well. But I think the other thing that I really comes through in what you say is this, this importance of having an environment where you can be yourself at work. 
because we all know that when we're allowed to be ourselves, that is generally when we will always be at our best. Because as you say, you're not modifying behaviours, you're not trying to fit in because you are accepted and valued for who you are. So I do think that's very much a starting point. I also liked, and you both talked about this, the importance of all voices and having um, mechanisms to work with networks and your employees to really bring the topics to the table because I think it's so important to have different perspectives in order to actually address what is needed to become more inclusive. And I'm a strong believer that if you do that as well, you will always bring people together. By bringing people together, you will get a better outcome as well with what you need to do towards the business. So thank you for sharing. I think I heard values, allowing people to be themselves and then creating an environment, be it through policies, procedures, but also a working environment where people are heard and can really contribute. So I come to the final question now, and this is for both of you. And that would be if there was one piece of advice on this topic that you could both give to the audience of the Good Employment Charter and employers across Greater Manchester, what would it be? And I'm going to go to Helen first. Yeah, thank you. I think the one piece of advice I'd give is that a lot of it comes down to, in the first instance, communication. I'd be talking about being very, very clear within your own organisation as to what inclusion means, what it looks like, and then just making sure that we are listening. We're listening to the information that we're getting back as well. Thank you. And Lisa? I'd say where possible, keep it as simple as you can. You know, you can't change everything in one go. So keep it simple as possible, make it relevant. And like Helen just said, communication, bring everyone on the journey. This isn't just about any specific group. It's about everybody. And that needs to be really clear in the comms from the word go. And I'd also say get the right people around the table from across the business, you know, get support, get everyone involved. And ask difficult questions, ask challenging questions and don't be afraid of that discomfort that might come with that. You know, who's missing and why and what are we going to do about it? Thank you. I think both of those pieces of advice are perfect and really, really valid for organisations and our other charter members. So I think, you know, communication is key. I think you talked a lot about that sort of the diversity in bringing people to the table and securing that there's an environment where people have a voice. Difficult questions are important where people feel uncomfortable because sometimes then you actually leads you to something better. So thank you both Helen and Lisa today for participating in the discussion and sharing your insights on such an important topic is inclusion, but also being aware that this is the long game and it's taking step by step and including people and engaging people that will give you better business. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. We'd like to thank all our speakers who really brought these important topics to life each and every episode. If you found this episode valuable, please leave us a review and recommend our podcast to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please get in touch for more information. And thanks for listening.